Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Holy is the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, If I don't know you, I'm Jason Keel. I'm the director of discipleship, and uh, I'm going to open this a little bit differently than a lot of people do. So just put on your seatbelt. You ready? There's a man who walks beside me. He is who I used to be. And I wonder if she sees him and confuses him with me. And I wonder who she's pining for all nights I'm not around. Could it be the man who did the things I'm living down? I love the beginning of that song. Uh, Like the first time I heard it, it sort of like grabbed me. I was like, wait a second. Are there two of you? Uh, And why why does she like pine for the other one? And what what happens? Uh, A good story grabs you and pulls you in, doesn't it? Uh, let me share with you some other ones. These are good stories. Some of them are some movies, some of them are books, but these are like the opening lines that really grab you. Uh, here's another one. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. What's a hobbit? Like if you've never read this story, you're like, what? why does he live in the ground? Uh, how about this one? Uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Ah, man. Just, just like takes me back to when I was like four years old in the movie theater. How about this one? Maybe you may not know this one, but this is a good one too. The man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. That's from Stephen King's the novel, The Gunslinger. Um, who is the man in black? Why is the gunslinger following him? And why would anybody walk into a terrible desert? I don't get it. Um, this is another one. I haven't read this book, but I, I found this quote. This is the very first line of the book, and I want to read this now. Um, Every summer, Lin Kong returned to Goose Village to divorce his wife, Shu Yu. What? Go home every summer to divorce your wife? What, what is going on? Or this may be familiar to some of you who have read some good children's literature. Uh, there are dragons in the twins' vegetable garden. That's uh, Madeline Lingle, A Wind in the Door. Uh, dragons in the garden? What's going on? Uh, and then this is, this is the best one I found so far, and I haven't read this one either, but I want to now. I lost an arm on my last trip home. That's the first line of the book. Uh, that's by Octavia Butler in her book, Kindred. So I have lots of questions about that. You know, th- those are all pretty great, but this is my absolute favorite beginning to a story. I'm going to read this to you. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, the Apostle John, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. See, good stories don't always begin with a good beginning, but when they do, they invite you into the story. It makes you want to read the next passage. It makes you want to find out who is this word? Why was he with God? Those kinds of questions immediately come to mind. It's almost like the storyteller took the time to sit down and think, what's going to tantalize my reader 
so that they want more. They want to keep reading. They want to keep listening. They maybe want to learn the words of the song and sing along with it the next time that they hear it. Even though the story that the Apostle Paul John sorry, wrote uh, is like in a dead language that we don't speak anymore, and it was written 2,000 years ago, its depth and its beauty and its mystery captivates so much that we read it often, especially this time of year. And that's fitting because he has a really amazing story to tell. Sometimes we forget how mind-blowing the Christmas story is. See, the Christmas holiday is really just a remembrance of a story. And we retell that story to each other all through this month and a half, two months that we spend thinking about it. It's the true story of the birth of the Son of God. Now, today, that's old news. I mean, who hasn't heard that Jesus is the Son of God uh, and all that stuff? From, because we've grown up in a culture that's been saturated in this for hundreds of years. Um, but if you step back and you think about it, it's pretty shocking that we would claim that there was a man who was the Son of God. Um, God became a man, and he lived among us, and he lived like us. Yet John's claim to Jesus' divinity um, is a little bit different than maybe you would think about from the ancient world. In the, in the world of the first century of Roman Empire, this kind of statement wasn't quite as shocking as it is to us today. I mean, today we're, you know, we're surrounded by people who are skeptics of religion in general. Or we may be uh, surrounded by people who are of a different religion, but it's, it's newer and it's more updated. And, and this idea would be different, like Islam. It hits an Islamic or a Muslim person differently than it would us. And it might even hit a Mormon differently than it does us because we're more, we've just in a different time in a different place than they are. But back in the ancient days, it wasn't so odd to hear a story about someone who claimed to be a god, especially a king. For example, the, C the Caesar Augustus claimed to be the son of a god. Now, if you, had, if you got dug down into it, you found out he was the adopted son of a god. Uh, and so he, but he said, I'm divine, and when I, because I'm great, when I die, I'm going to be, ascend into the pantheon of the gods. Pharaohs, from the very beginning, said that they were the sons of gods. Why do they say that? Well, because they think that the whole, they thought that Osiris, the main chief god of ancient um, Egypt, was the first king of Egypt. And every pharaoh after that descended from him. So they would all say, well, we are gods too. We are Egypt. You'd be hard pressed to find an ancient king who didn't claim to be either a god or to be the descendant of a god. But John's claim about Jesus' divinity is pretty different. It was shocking to his first readers in a different way than it's shocking to anybody in our modern world today. So what I want to do the rest of our time together is I want to examine John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So if you have a Bible in your app or like a hard copy, um, open that up. If you don't have one, there's one on the back table there, and we'd be happy for you to take one of those. Uh, even take it home with you if you don't have one of your own. But everybody turn with me to John, the gospel according to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So let's unpack this. Okay, good. I, I hear the, the turning pages. I love that sound. Thank you. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. Okay, I'm just going to stop there for a second. This is echoes of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. Now, the Greek word translated word 
is logos or logos. Um, does anybody know what logos means? Yes, in a sense. Uh, it also plainly means word. Yep, that's all it means. <laughs> uh, so when we hear that, we're like, oh, good, word. What? Okay. So what, what's, what's the deal? But to an ancient Greek who heard that word logos, there was layers of meaning underneath, including what she said. But there's another one, like a more cosmic kind of philosophical kind of thing going on. Um, it means, with a capital L, logos, it was an idea that there was an eternal logic, an eternal truth, an eternal word, a divine truth that was like foundational for the universe. Uh, the closest thing that we can have that comes to that might be the force from Star Wars, but it's not the same. Uh, it's, it's not the same, but it's, but you know, like you know how uh, Qui-Gon Jinn says it binds the universe together and blah, 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 all that stuff, right? So that's, that's just a, like a, a little bit of what the Greeks might have thought of when they heard the word word, like in, in a capital W sort of way. Uh, it was the divine reason underlying all of creation. It was a universal truth with a capital T. And the word as stated by philosophers was in the beginning. So this was sort of familiar to them. Their, their eyes, ears would have pricked up. Huh? What? This is a Christian document, isn't it? Now let's keep going in verse one. Uh, picked up here. And the word was with God. And the word was God. It was with God. That's how the Greeks would have thought of the word. The word would have been an it. But it sounds like John is saying the word was a person. You might say he was with God. And that would have struck them as really odd for him to say that. Um, it would have actually would have blown their minds of any reader who was at all familiar with Greek thought at the time. It was unprecedented, as far as I know, in any ancient religion to say that this thing that held the universe together was a person. It was uh, just not done. I'll give you an example. You know, I alluded earlier to say that Augustus Caesar was the adopted son of a god, and he thought that he was going to ascend to the pantheon. Well, that adopted father was Julius Caesar. And it was thought that Julius Caesar, because he was such a great statesman and such a great general and conqueror, that he ascended it and became a god. But he was a man first. He was only a man first. And then he became a god. Pharaoh, same thing. By tradition, he's the son of a king, a pre, um, sorry, son of the first king of Egypt, Osiris. And that guy was a god who married a woman and then had a, a regular guy, or like a half god, if you will, a demigod. And, but he was a human being. And then when he dies, he ascends and he becomes this divine person and joins the pantheon. Um, but here's what John is saying. He's saying the logos, the word, he was God, but he was another person who was with God too. And that's really different. It's really odd. Let's look at verse th three. He continues to kind of unfold this picture for all of his hearers, both Jewish and Greek. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in some way, quote, all things were made through him, and nothing was made without him. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates by speaking, does he not? Let there be light. Let the waters be separated. 
Uh, let the dry earth be there and let the waters surround it. Uh, let there be birds of the air, and fish of the sea. He's saying these things and they happen. And John is drawing attention to Genesis chapter 1 and Greek thought and marrying them together by saying this word is really different than you think it is. Uh, he was the creator, this word was. He is the most high God. Lots of ancient religions have most high gods. And most of the time what happens in those ancient religions is they, make, they have children, and then their children get together and kill them. And then they make the world out of their, out of their dead body. Just go, go, go read some ancient mythology. Uh, and and the, I love the Bible because the Bible is like a, nah, yeah, but. That's the whole, the whole thing in the Bible. It's like, nope, that's not actually correct. Uh, no one killed this God. No one rose up against him. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-holding, all-together. And now John is saying that God, who the ancient Israelites called Yahweh, is becoming a person. Uh, Yahweh means I am that I am. And that's kind of an interesting, strange way of saying, like, all being, all things are centered in who I am. Everything comes from my essence, and I create things, and there's no other. So get this. To a Greek or a Roman, John is saying the person that he's writing about is a divine truth with a capital T associated with the making of the universe. But he's a person not some kind of force or idea or logic or truth or reason. He's not just those things. He's a person. And to, an, a Greek, to a Jew, an ancient Jewish person, an Israelite, John is saying that, that the person he is writing about is Yahweh. And yet he is also with Yahweh. And that nothing was created without him. Both groups would have just sat back after hearing these first five verses and said, excuse me, what? Uh, I need to know more. Like, flesh this out for us, please. So who is this word who was there at creation, who was God, and through whom everything was made? That's the question that you're left with after you read these first five verses in John's gospel. It's, it's pulled you in now. If you're an ancient person and you're thinking, I've got to know where this guy's going, even if it's blasphemy and even if it's preposterous, I need to know who this is. And so this is, if you read further in John's gospel, he reveals who this person is. He is a Galilean craftsman who proclaimed himself to be a rabbi. Uh, his name was Jesus of Nazareth, which was a podunk little town in the hills of Galilee in a backwater province of the Roman Empire where no Roman soldier or Roman of any kind of um, elevation in society wanted to go. And John wants to tell you that this guy is God. And that's an amazing thing to say. Let, let, let that soak in for a moment. It would be kind of like me, like my granddaddy was a finishing carpenter in Dothan, Alabama in the early 1900s. My great granddaddy, excuse me. And, um, 
you know, he was the guy who, when they built the house, would come in and finish the doors and make them look nice and make them work well, make sure the windows were tight and sealed and insert the glass, make sure the panes were in place. He would put in the molding around the edges to make it look good, but also keep the heat or the cold out, whatever it is you wanted, right? So imagine I'm standing up here with you, and I, and I said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and nothing was made without him. And by the way, he's my great-granddaddy. What? <laughs> that it doesn't make any sense. But that's what this story says. Now, let's read another familiar Christmas text in light of what we just learned. Uh, if you want to turn with me, I'm going to Luke chapter 2. So you can just flip back one book in the New Testament. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This, is, this will be real familiar to you. Um, this comes from the, the gospel according to Luke, and Luke was a, kind of an amateur historian. And this is written in a very historical style. You'll notice he's going to like name people that you, everybody knew were actual real people. This is not mythological in the way that we understand that word. Okay, This is supposed to be history. It is. It is history. So let's read this together. Now that we have gotten this sort of epic philosophical idea, let's bring it down to a historical text that everybody looks at and goes, yeah, yeah, that's history. Uh, Luke 2, 1. In those days was a, was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration since Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all wanted to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So familiar text, but let's just overlay that with John's claim about who Jesus is. And I'll just make a statement. This is sort of summarize where we've been so far. At Christmas, we claim that Yahweh the divine Logos, the creator, was born as a son of a Galilean virgin peasant girl and her fiancé in a stable while they were on a trip commanded by the god emperor of a human empire. That's weird. And it's wonderful. What a great story. Man, like, we think this is cool. Okay, you know, there's there's meaning to the red and the green and there's meaning to why we choose evergreen trees and why we sing the songs we do. But I think what happens in Christmas sometimes is that it just kind of sits in the background while we think about all our list of things we've got to do and the stress of driving however long you drive to be with your family and wondering if old your uncle is going to start a, a, you know, like a weird political conversation and all around Christmas dinner and all that stuff. And the wonder of this amazing story sits back in the back of our minds. And I just want to bring the mythic, epic idea of what this is back into your daily life from here until Christmas uh, as we go through the Advent season. Now, you heard me use the word myth a couple of times. That's because I've run into people, and you probably have too, who are like, yeah, but this is just a myth. It's just a story to explain something. You know, there are several ancient myths. This, this is true. There are several ancient myths about a dying God who lives again to explain winter and spring and other natural phenomena. That's true. There are other stories that are scored a kind of along those lines. 
Some see the story of Jesus, his miraculous birth, his death, and his resurrection as a non-historical story of Jesus' um, rise to an influential teacher who changed the world. That's how some people look at this. Um, however, uh, there's two really smart guys who I love who would disagree with them. And yet they would, they would find a small piece of truth in this as well. I'm talking about C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was also a literature professor uh, and a scholar of ancient literature at Oxford University and at Cambridge, and his good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, they were, he was a, a scholar of ancient languages and ancient stories. Uh, and they looked at that idea as, oh, it's just a myth. And they thought about it a little bit differently. Um, they didn't see it as just a myth. Um, during his, the process of Lewis's conversion to becoming a believer in Jesus, he had many conversations with Tolkien that led him to think about ancient stories, especially the Christian story, differently. Lewis came to the conclusion that myth, and I quote, at its best is a real, though unfocused, gleam of divine truth falling on human imagination. Well, let me read that again. Myth, at its best, is a real, though unfocused, gleam of divine truth falling on human imagination. That's why you can have stories from all over the world about a dying God who rises again. Why? Because somewhere in reality, the way the world was made, that was going to happen. Those kinds of stories resonate with us because of who we are. We're made in God's image. He continues in the same um, article, the heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact, okay? So it's not just a myth in the sense that he's talking about. This is divine light shining into human consciousness through stories. He says the heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God without ceasing to be myth comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place followed by definable historical consequences. Jesus is not just a myth, but the stories that we all love and crave, the stories that brought people around campfires, that defined whole people's identities with each other, had echoes that were going to come true. They were going to be real. Jesus really was the Son of God. Jesus really would come and defeat death and pay for sins. It's real, and yet it resonates with all of us because of this underlying story that's bound into our hearts. John Calvin talks about the Bible in this way. He says it's like God's baby talk, uh, and it helps us understand God and what he's doing in the world. And I think Lewis is thinking along the same lines as Calvin. Uh, according to him, this is Lewis, God came down and died and rose again, just like in the old myths. But, the time, but this time it was real, and it's in documented history. The Christmas story is part of a set of documents that are the most well-attested historical documents known to man. I, along with Lewis and Tolkien and others, am here to tell you that even though it's preposterous, and it's unbelievable, and it seems like it's just a myth, that it's real. It is real. It's true. 
It's a true story in every sense you can imagine. In Christmas, myth and history are united into an amazing, true, factual, historical story that really happened about a real person who is also God. And it's worth dedicating six to eight weeks every year to tell this story to each other over and over and over again, to share this story with our neighbors, with people who don't know Jesus, with people who do know Jesus, with people who hate Jesus, with people who are just thirsting for him and they don't know they are. The Apostle Paul, who's one of the earliest church planters and missionaries, summed up the meaning of Christmas like this. And he does it, he's actually trying to help these people learn how to treat each other well. But as he's drawing their attention to how they're treating each other, he's drawing his attention to how Jesus treated us. And this is very Christmassy. This is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So, as we approach Christmas this year, let's remember the story in all its weirdness and all its glory. Let's remember that God loved the world so much that he would send his divine son to become a human being, a baby. Think about that. The logos, the thing that holds the whole world together, the thing that... Through, through him, without him, nothing was made. Inhabited a, an infant's body and needed to be burped. And he did have his diapers changed. He needed a mom and a dad to provide for his needs. He needed them to teach him how to walk, to show him proper etiquette in his society, to show him how to be friends with people until the time when he was ready to teach us the way and then to die as a substitute for us. He grew up among normal, regular people. He lived a perfect life, and he died a death that he didn't deserve for sinners like you and like me. Through his death, he offers atonement for all the sins you have ever committed or ever will commit. But that's not the end of the story. He rose again. He defeated death and hell. And he frees those who are enslaved to sinful ways of living and gives everlasting life and joyful relationship with the best dad you could ever have. Ever. And that's really good news because I'm afraid of dying, aren't you? Or at least the process of it. My dad was great, but he wasn't perfect. Some of you maybe had horrible dads. Some of you are enslaved to things that you know are not good for you, but you don't know how to get out of it. And Jesus comes to save you. Christmas is an amazing story, but it's not just a story. It's true and it's for you. Take time to stop and think about where you stand with God today. Have you ever taken the time to really look at yourself and ask, why would God... Uh, send Jesus to pay for the sins of people? Well, because we need that. If you don't believe me, look at the world. Look at all the ways we hurt each other, we lie to each other, we abuse each other, we steal from each other, we kill each other. 
The world is a mess. We need someone to come and straighten this mess out. Have you ever asked, am I worthy of that kind of sacrifice? Because you're not. That's the bad news of Christmas. The bad news is you're not worthy of it. The good news is you get the present anyway. Right? Jesus is not Santa Claus. When you think about it, Santa Claus is really not good news. You've got to obey your parents all year long. And then maybe if he thinks you're good enough, you won't get like a lump of coal. But Jesus is sort of like, I love you and I'll die to make sure that you get the gift that I want to give you. So here's the question I want to leave you with. Have you ever responded to that sacrifice by saying, yes, please, I don't deserve it, but I need it. And I want to give you my life so that I can know the best dad in the universe. John sums it up this way. In John chapter 11, 25 and 26, he says, this is Jesus talking. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's pretty mythic, isn't it? But it's also true. If you've never placed your faith belief, trust, whatever you want to call it, in Jesus to save you from your sins and from your death. Do it now. Don't wait another moment. Take your small role in God's great story. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.